It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who don't play games with vaccine preventable diseases. No, we play other games, all kinds of games. I'm playing Mario Maker 2 at the moment. Right now? No, not literally at the moment, okay. but that's what I'm in the middle of. <laughs> I was like, Nathan, my name is Karen Ernst. I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, a general pediatrician here at uh, Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And we are doing something fun. So it is the beginning of National Immunization Awareness Month. In years past, the month has been divided into four weeks where it was sort of an age-by-age age thing. There were pregnant women, there were babies and young kids, and there were school-age kids, and there were adults. And we kind of focused on the, those um, groups, and we have two years' worth of podcasts for National Immunization Awareness Month focused on those groups. But this year, the CDC has become more thematic so we decided that their themes are pretty much what we do every day. Mm-hmm. So as long as NIAM is about celebrating immunizations, we are going to make a game show month. Woo! I know. So those are the games we play. <laughs> and we are going to have uh, four different episodes with four different games. No whammy. I haven't decided what all the games are going to be yet, but this is the first game. I'm excited because we've invited the um, incomparable Tara Haley to come and join us. Ooh. Hello, Tara. Hello. Incomparable. I like that. Incomparable. Indeed. Tara is a health journalist and a science journalist, which sort of puts her in a different sphere from where we are. So, Tara, do you want to tell us a little bit about how being a health journalist informs what you know and what you do about vaccines? Yeah, it's funny because I've been writing about vaccines now for seven or eight years, and I frequently have people ask me whenever I'm at conferences or people hear, oh, you write about vaccines, and the first question I get is, are you pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine? And I kind of love getting the question, even though I hate the question, because I always answer the same way, which is, I'm not pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. I am pro-science and evidence. And the most current, up-to-date consensus of evidence shows that the safest, most effective way to protect children from infectious disease is to follow the CDC's recommended schedule. And they always kind of look at me for a minute, and I'm like, sorry, that's the easiest answer you're going to get. Because I don't, um, I think it's important that people realize journalists, we don't take sides. Our job isn't to be public health officials or to promote vaccines or or, pr- or not promote vaccines. Our job is to find out factual information, put it in context, convey it to people, and help them understand what's true and what's not true and you know how they can get more information about it. I really relish that role because I get to always be a truth seeker. I don't, I'm not beholden to anybody but the people I'm talking to and writing for. So what have you written or made lately on the topic of vaccines that you want to talk about? Let's see, what are some of the most recent articles I've done? I've written some, I write regularly at Forbes on some stuff and I, I did a really fun article at history.com about the history of the measles vaccine which was super, super, super fascinating. Um, totally random fact to throw out there if people want to look it up but um, the reason that we have the measles vaccine has a lot to do with the fact that a guy from California and a guy uh, living in Philadelphia were both from a small town in Montana 
and they both needed chickens. Um, <laughs> really random fact. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but um, I'm especially proud because I published Vaccination Investigation, The mm -hmm. History and Science of Vaccines. It's a book that was written for young adults, uh, which means teenagers and young adults, literally, or, or parents. And I made sure to include the history and the science of vaccines, which means I kind of got to show the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the awesome. Mm -hmm. Because there, there are some uh, unpleasant things that happen in the early days of vaccines and we learned a lot from those and the reason that we have vaccines today that are as safe as they are um, is that we you know found some stuff out the hard way unfortunately um, but we now have some really incredible surveillance systems and testing systems in place so that those kinds of things don't happen again so talked about that and I also get to talk in the book a little bit about what makes people um, how they think about science and interpret evidence and the ways our brains sometimes trick us when we're trying to find out the truth, but our brains kind of get in the way almost. So that's also in the book, in addition to basic information about vaccines. So I'm going to get on and order. I feel like bad that I haven't ordered that already, but I think that'd be you right haven't up the ordered alley. My yet? For I've got uh, a teen and a tween here that would probably be very yes. interested in that. You have written, though, at least one other book. I've written The Informed Parent, along mm -hmm. with science writer Emily Willingham, who has a PhD in developmental biology. The two of us were very frustrated with the fact that we would constantly see um, you know, articles that would be like, you know, today you should do this and tomorrow you should do that. And it seemed like the studies were contradictory and we didn't have context. And I just kind of wanted to know, what does the evidence show? I don't want someone telling me what to do. I just want to know what does the evidence as a whole show? Not just one study, but all of it together. And my co-author, um, Dr. Willingham, would become frustrated with the mom guilt that people would use. They would use science as a weapon sometimes and say, well, this study says that, so you should do that. And so the two of us got together and looked at all of the evidence that was available on just about every topic you can imagine from about preconception through about age four. And we distilled all that information into bite-sized pieces that you can easily skim through because no parent has time um, shortly after a baby is born to read a, any book cover to cover. If they do, I worship the ground they walk on. I don't know how they do it. Um, their baby's probably neglected or something, right? Um, that's awful. That's I'm, I'm joking. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, so um, that was a really fun book to do. It was hard, but I thought it was really important because it was the book that I wish I had had when I was um, trying to get pregnant and then having my, my kids. It's interesting being a health journalist these days. Because... <laughs> yes. Because there isn't a lot of money put into journalism in general, but health journalism tends to be one of the first things lopped off. Yes. And so the journalists who end up covering especially local stories about vaccines in particular are people mm -hmm. who are used to covering, you know, like dog catcher stories and what have you. Right. So can you tell us a little bit about what it takes to be a really good health journalist? Yeah, it's one of the challenging things is that people think of journalism as this monolithic field that all journalists work the same way. And in a way we do. I mean, we all have to find out information. We have to find good sources and evaluate those sources. We have to consider all the different perspectives that are involved in a story, which which could be two sides of a story. It could be more or sometimes there's not two sides. It's, you know, understanding what all the different stakeholders, who all the different stakeholders are. The problem is that some types of journalism are different than others. When you're covering sports journalism, there's there's definitely two sides and that's it. Unless you're covering like golf and you have multiple people. But I mean, for the most part, you know, it's it's the team against the team. 
Um, and so it's a pretty clear cut, you know, these guys against those guys. When you're covering business, um, it's often multiple players on the business end, and sometimes the consumers come in. When you're covering politics, it's often a two sides issue, but you have to consider where the truth is, because usually all the various people involved are, are being a little bit dishonest in some form or another, and you have to figure out who's being more dishonest. Health and science journalism is unique in that you don't have to sort of guess what people say or watch a game and see who wins. It's not about that. Um, it's about looking at actual evidence. We can look at, you know, we have all these wonderful scientists and researchers who have taken time to design studies carefully, run the studies, find the results, and then try to replicate those results and see if they replicate and, and do it again and again. And over time, we get a body of evidence and we can rely on that evidence when we're reporting. The problem is when someone from say sports journalism or someone who's used to covering city hall where there's usually kind of a you know city hall wants to do this and there's someone else doesn't want that or two people on city hall are, are you know arguing or you know there's usually kind of a two or three sides issue and it's not about truth or fact or fiction it's about um, you know a, a, it's about people with different agendas and, and what works best for the city. And so when someone like that tries to cover health or science issues when they haven't done it before, they bring that paradigm of two sides into what their reporting is and they have to find, well, what's the other side? And there's not always a quote unquote other side in science. In science, it's what do we know from the evidence? And within the evidence, there might be differing perspectives. If we're covering cancer, there might be you know three different people with three different ideas about the best way to combine certain drugs or treatments or radiation to cover something, you know, to fight a cancer, but it's based on evidence. It's not based on thoughts or opinions or feelings. And I think it's really important that we understand that because if, if you don't, and you have a reporter who comes in with that sort of objectivity, two sides paradigm, they, they may inadvertently engage in something we'll call um, false equivalence. Mm -hmm. And false equivalence is where you give equal weight to two different opposing sides when the evidence does not actually support both sides equally. When you're covering science, if I was going to talk about, it's actually similar if you, talk, if you write about history, but if I'm going to write about, um, you know, whether or not the earth is flat or not, I'm not going to say, well, you know, these people over here think the earth is flat and these people over here think the earth is round. We know that the earth is round. There's not really a question. The evidence is pretty clear. We have real astronauts who went into the sky and saw it in their own eyes. And so you would not include someone who believes the earth is flat in that story. So in the same way, when you cover even contentious, controversial issues or issues made to sound controversial, like you know, climate change, or there's other issues in healthcare, but vaccines, you have to look at what the, what the weight of the evidence is. Um, if you have one doctor out there who says this vaccine is dangerous, but you have 99 other doctors saying, actually the evidence shows here that it's not, and you only include one of each of those doctors in the story, you're making it sound like they each have an equal point of view, when in reality, mm -hmm. one of them has the weight of evidence and the weight of expertise of 98 other doctors behind them, and the other guy's kind of the lone nutcase. And the bottom line is that when you're covering health and science, you don't have to rely only on asking people their opinions or thoughts about things. Sometimes that's relevant because the way you might carry something out might matter. But what's more important than anything is looking at what the evidence shows and assessing the evidence and finding experts who can help you assess that evidence because you're not going to have the expertise to do it all on your own. 
And that leads me just perfectly into our game that we're going to play. Excellent. We're playing a game I call Fact Checker. I have found a clip. I'm going to play the audio of a clip that was on television. There is a television journalist speaking to an expert about vaccines. And so I'm just going to set this up real quick. Uh, this expert had been covered by John Oliver. Yay, I love John Oliver. <laughs> but didn't like what John Oliver said about him. Oh, well, okay. I should mention who these people are. So this is Tucker Carlson is our journalist. Okay, that's a loose definition of journalist, but go on. And Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is our vaccine expert. Uh, I'm sorry, that's a very, very loose definition of expert. <laughs> as, as Arthur Dent would say, this <laughs> must be some strange definition of the word expert that I was not previously aware of. But okay, I'll roll with it. <laughs> the way this game works is that I'm going to play this, and whenever you want to jump in and fact check him or make some commentary about what's going on, either journalistically or scientifically or stylistically, um, you just tell me to pause the audio or, you know, however you want to say that. Can I say okay. stop the presses? Yes, that's good. <laughs> stop the presses. <laughs> I'm renaming the show Stop the Presses. Um, okay, great. <laughs> so we're just going to play a little bit of this. Um, I think I've set it up well. So we are rebutting what John Oliver said about RFK Jr. on the Tucker Carlson show. And I will put both um, video links in the show notes. So... Here we go. All right. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. joins us tonight. The response to that piece that John Oliver did really struck me. I think of you as someone whose bona fides as a Democrat and a liberal are kind of unimpeachable, and yet they piled on you. Why? Why is raising questions about the safety of vaccines a no-go zone on the left? Let's stop right there. Oh, I was going to say stop the presses. So this is the framing that there always is, this idea that it's asking questions, quote unquote, that gets people in like this anti-vaccine realm or that it's verboten in some way. Just asking questions. Right. Which is not what we're talking about. Every good scientist and every good journalist, right, asks questions. This is yep. not unique to uh, RFK Jr. or any of the... Kind, uh, any of the people on of, of his opinion that he's referring to asking questions is not just something we do it's the backbone of everything we do i mean if you can't ask good questions and you don't know the questions to ask and who to ask them of you can't be a good scientist or a good journalist it's it's everything yeah and people ask questions and scientists are constantly asking questions every time that there's a new study that comes out which there are studies on vaccines that come out all the time that is because a scientist had a hypothesis. That is a question that they're asking that mm -hmm. they're trying to either provide evidence for or against with their, uh, with their study. And so the idea that asking questions about vaccines gets you in trouble is completely false. The problem here is these questions that are, first of all, a lot of times they're not even questions. They're just, when it comes to RFK Jr., just outright statements of of falsehood. Yeah, I was going to say, because he doesn't ask questions. Yeah, right. But sometimes it's that they're asking questions that have been answered over and over again. They've made up their mind. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that, was, that was why I stopped it. I was like, he doesn't actually ask questions. Yes. All right, go. Well, 
You know, it's interesting because it, it's not consistent with the traditional liberal posture of skepticism towards large corporate power and particularly the pharmaceutical industry yes. and, and government agencies. And, and CDC has been characterized by at least four federal studies as a cesspool of corruption because of its pervasive... Okay. Whoa, whoa, stop. What? <laughs> okay. Hey. So wait, wait I, I'm kind of already lost. Is he saying that, wait, who is he saying is a cesspool of corruption? I, I, I thought he that. said it's been characterized by four studies. Is that what he said? Yeah, okay, so that was, <laughs> and he was talking about the CDC? Yeah, it's yeah. like four federal agencies have studied the CDC oh. and said it's a cesspool Says of corruption. Says who? I, I want to see these studies because I have never heard these before. Like, what, what studies is he talking about? Is this one of those like, wait, I don't think that word means what you think it means? Things right. Like well, I'm I'm interested in the, the <laughs> researchers like, that uh, make the conclusion of their study conclusions. Cesspool of corruption. <laughs> Further research needed. Yeah, I, I don't think that's the kind of language that scientists like use. Like what? <laughs> what is that? Well, and, and the other thing is, you know, okay, I am not going to defend um, pharmaceutical companies. If, if you wanted to, I could spend like an entire hour on a podcast telling you all kinds of horrible, awful things that pharmaceutical companies have done. They are for-profit companies. I get that. However, just because they're for-profit does not, and just because they have done some bad things in the past, which they certainly have, does not mean that everything they do by default is bad. Um, in fact, we've gotten better and better about regulating them. And although I understand the perspective that there is a revolving door, or some people are worried about a revolving door at places like the FDA, for example, where someone is working in industry, and then they go to the FDA, and then they, they go back to industry, honestly when you're looking at the CDC, that doesn't happen very often. CDC is really different from a lot of the other agencies. Um, mm -hmm. CDC is a bunch of career scientists. They're not, mm -hmm. they're, they're one of the least political agencies that we have in the government. You know, I'm not saying they're infallible. CDC has said or done things that have made me annoyed or, or things I've disagreed with at times. But if I'm going to put my trust in a government agency or, or find an agency to point the finger at, the CDC is low on that list. Yeah, I've always tried to, when, when people use the phrase revolving door, I've tried to investigate and be like, okay, what do you mean by revolving door? And they'll, they'll say something like, you know, people are getting hired from industry or go out. And I'm like, give me an example. And it's very actually difficult for anyone to tell me who is, they'll, they'll tell me that like Julie Gerberding, who I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but yeah, that's right. that she went into industry after she left. And I'm like, okay, well. That seems less concerning to me than right. somebody big in industry coming into the CDC. Like, right. she left the CDC. She's going to get a job somewhere. Like, I, I've met Julie um, at, a, at a conference. And um, if there's anyone I want working at Merck, she's awesome. I mean, she really knows what she's yeah. doing. She, she's actually the kind of person I really want to see working in pharma. Um, hmm. But, you know, that, I mean, that's just her in particular. I can't speak to other people. It doesn't really seem like a revolving door per se. It's very difficult to get good examples of, of, a, yeah. of a serious, like something that you find ethically questionable. And plus, when you're working at the CDC, it's very much a career situation. FDA is not as career oriented as CDC is. CDC, right. you've got a lot of long-term researchers. Hmm. So they go there and they stay there for a very long time because they're working on very long-term projects with federal grants and federal money. Sure. There's no you can't do much if there's a revolving door. Let's see what else our friend RFK Jr. has to say. The CDC, the CDC vaccine branch has really turned, is really a subsidiary of the vaccine industry. Okay, stop the presses. 
I want evidence for that. Well, he's going to give you the evidence. <laughs> can't you tell? I, well, it's coming. But I mean, like, okay, no, no. <laughs> A subsidiary of the vaccine industry. I have I have been to the CDC. I have walked the halls. I've spoken to people in the vaccine section. I have spoken to people in industry. I've been at conference where they both are. Um, that's not always a cozy relationship. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just not. Um, so yeah, I call I call BS on that one for sure. They're just uh, putting Show up a front for you, Tara. <laughs> they're just they're just showing you what you want to see. <laughs> of and course, that they other are. hand that's yeah. behind their back has that big wad uh-huh. of pharma cash. You're not looking behind their back. Yeah, yeah, I, I am not. It's just kind of like those those shill checks that I keep waiting to arrive in the mail. I've been waiting for yeah, seven, yeah. eight years now. Never seen one. <laughs> All right, let's keep going. It sells $4.1 billion worth of vaccines a year. It spends about $4.6 billion, almost half of its budget, promoting vaccines, and it only spends Wait, $20 million. Yeah, Is stop. he talking about the CDC is spending that money? Yeah, yes. Is he talking about vaccines for children? That's called budget. Yeah, That's what I, I think, think so. yeah. Hello, do we want kids who can't afford quality health care, which is unfortunately a big problem in our country, just because health care is a mess in our country. One of the few things that's not a mess in our country when it comes to health care is that nobody is denied a vaccine because they can't afford it. There are no children who can't get vaccines because of money. It's it's a, it's one of the great accomplishments of vaccine policy. Yeah. So the the I think what he's alluding to is this that the fact that there's a government program where vaccines are purchased from the manufacturer at a discount and then we buy them at a reduced rate for um, underprivileged populations to so that they can get vaccinations, as Tara was saying. But if this is being portrayed as some kind of money making scheme, then it's absolutely ridiculous yeah the, the cdc does not make money they spend money <laughs> yeah um it, it's budgeted for and, and i didn't know what he meant by the promotion thing yeah I, I have no idea what he means by the whole promoting i i, I mean it may sound like it was propaganda but i don't know what he's yeah saying. i mean obviously cdc does vaccine promotion i mean it's called education right one of Edu- yeah. one of yeah. the you know one of the missions of cdc is to educate the populace about public health so sure I mean, if you want to call that promoting vaccines, it's called education. <laughs> and it only spends $20 million testing vaccines. That's good for a tiny handful of the vaccines we have. One of the problems that... Stop know, the presses. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> so wait, he's saying that they only spend X amount on testing vaccines. That's because the bulk of testing is paid for by the manufacturers. They're required to pay. They, they have all kinds of requirements they have to meet. Um, in order to have a vaccine be approved by the FDA. And something a lot of people don't really think about is that vaccines have a far, far, far higher threshold for safety and risk than other medications because you're giving it to healthy children. Mm -hmm. When you give a drug to somebody where they're already sick, you're assessing the benefit and risk in terms of if they don't get that drug, then they're gonna stay sick. But you can't do that with vaccines because the person receiving the vaccine is not sick at that moment. They're healthy. So you cannot have, you know, the the threshold for problems is so, so much tinier. That's why we only give vaccines if there's like a one in a million chance of, of an allergic reaction that's extremely rare. So in order to get that level of safety, that's on the manufacturers. They have to spend that money. Mm-hmm. That's why you have so many vaccine studies that are funded by manufacturers because they're paying for it, not taxpayers. I mean, if you want to pay for it, go be my guest. Go <laughs> donate to somebody. But frankly, I would rather the for-profit companies be spending their money on that. I've been meeting recently with the heads of various federal agencies. 
And one of the you know, one of the kind of shocking things about vaccines is that there's very little safety testing. Stop. Yeah, Stop the I feel like we've covered this. <laughs> yeah, I know, but I just have to say, I it is my job to look at the safety of this stuff, you know, so that I'm reporting it accurately. And I just have to say that I don't know if there is any intervention out there in medicine that is more heavily tested than vaccines. If there is, I'm not aware of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can. If you have a normal drug, let's say Vioxx or Viagra. Um, if you want to bring that to market, typically FDA requires you to do double-blind placebo studies. So you take 9,000 people, give them the pill, 9,000 people, and give them a pill that's identical except it's just sugar. And then you look, you watch typically for around five years and see if there's harm. Yes. Oh, with vaccines, all of those requirements are waived. I don't know what to Stop think of. Stop the presses. <laughs> False. Yeah, in reality, we test vaccines very similarly to the way that we test any other drug. We do double-blind controlled trials. Sometimes it's a placebo where we use um, any, like a uh, an injection that has heparin in it, for example, like a, like a salt water. Um, other times, we don't give like a salt water, we give another vaccine that's already been well tested. So we might give one kid the vaccine that we're testing and then the other kids all get, say, the hepatitis A vaccine because we already have shown that the hepatitis A vaccine is safe and effective. We know what the adverse events of it are. We know what its profile is and we can compare it. And the reason they do that is that it's unethical to deny a child the protection against an infectious disease if you're giving another child. It would not get, you have to get every study that you do approved by an institutional review board whose job is to look at it and say, is this an ethical study to promote? And if you're going to a large population of people and you're giving half of them something that you're pretty sure is safe and effective and is actually going to protect them and you're not giving it to the other half, you're leaving that other half unprotected. They're not going to let you do that. So you give them a different vaccine so that they're still getting the benefit of protection against some other kind of disease and it's a a vaccine that's already been tested as safe. But in either case, you have the same end result, which is you are comparing a known quantity against the tested quantity and you're doing this with tens of thousands of children for many years, um, you know, I think the HPV uh, vaccine was tested for what almost I think six years or something. I, I can't well, don't quote me on that. I can't remember the exact number, but it, it was tested sure. for a number of years before it ever went to market. Mm-hmm. And the other thing with it is that sometimes, so with HPV in particular, you know, a lot of those arms of the placebo controlled or the controlled trials were with. Uh, one arm with the full vaccine, one arm with the excipient, which was everything but the viral particles, but the antigen, basically. Good point, yes. Of it, yeah. But they also did saline arms with that. There's blinding advantages to that because the, the vaccine, like the HPV vaccine, is a particularly painful one. And so if you're just getting a little mm-hmm. bit of saline, you may know off the bat that you are not getting it's not like taking a pill you may know right off the bat that you're not getting the vaccine or that you are getting the vaccine just based on how you feel in the arm afterwards so it pays to do multiple arm like to do some with excipient and then some with saline to kind of confirm the findings that are with the excipient there are reasons for doing the kinds of trials that they do and that's what rfk jr is ignoring in his rant and I just have to say, my favorite thing to say whenever I talk about the HPV vaccine is that shot hurts like a mofo, but you know what? Cervical cancer hurts a hell of a lot more. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to throw that out there. And throat cancer. 
and throat cancer and penile Indeed. cancer and anal cancer. I mean, I we can go down the list. Right. And frankly, I mean, I don't know how oral how uh, how genital warts feel. I am very fortunate. I've never <laughs> had them. I'm grateful for that. But um, even if they're not painful, I guarantee the look on your partner's face when they see them is going to be painful. <laughs> it's a qual- it's a big quality right. of life effector. Absolutely. Let's go. I don't know what to think of that. I, I have many children. I had them all vaccinated. I'm not against vaccines. But I am for asking sincere questions, and I suspect... Exactly. I'm deeply suspicious of people who shout down those questions on the basis of the fact they're unfashionable. So I still don't understand why all of a sudden you're not allowed to ask sincere questions. I don't think you're getting paid for this, are you? No, I'm not. In fact, I'm getting unpaid. I highly doubt that. (laughs) Okay. I do not know if RFK Jr. is or is not getting paid to say the things that he's saying. He seems to be a true believer. I can't comment on that. I can comment on the fact that a very substantial proportion of people who speak out against the safety of vaccines or claim that they are just asking questions when they are mm-hmm. asking questions that have been solidly answered by science years ago, there's a lot of money in that. And so to presume that there is only money coming from the pharma industry side and that there's no money involved in the anti-vax side is highly disingenuous. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's money. There's a lot of money there. In fact, I think there was, was it the Washington Post? There was a great yep. article recently on yeah. this. I think it was yeah. WAPO, but I Lena can't remember. Sun, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she's a wonderful reporter. Mm-hmm. All right, that's what I was going to say. Okay, hang on. My phone turned off. Okay, here we go. I'm getting unpaid for this. It's been probably the worst career move that I've ever made. But, and, but you know, this is something I deeply concerning. Fact check true. I was just going to say it's true. <laughs> Broken clocks, you know? This checks out. He's right. This was the worst move. I mean, I adored his father. His father is one of the most important statesmen in our near history because of things that he did. And and he was actually instrumental in addressing a lot of the needs of underprivileged children. And it was such a disappointment to me to see how his legacy has played out. Um, So, um, yeah, that's true. (laughs) Yay, he was right. Also (laughs) worth pointing out that his family knows it and has uh, spoken out about uh, how... Uh, bad and how bad of an effect what he is saying has on uh, the health and the health of children. True, true. All right. It's deeply concerning to me because if you look at the vaccine schedule, the vaccine schedule was um, expanded dramatically in 1989. In 1987. This is my favorite thing for people to say. But, but when I was a kid, we only got, you know, six or seven vaccines. They usually talk about getting the polio vaccine, the MMR, and the DTP, the, the mm-hmm. diphtheria, tetanus, and uh, pertussis vaccine. And in today, it's exploded. Oh, my gosh. They get, like, I don't know, 27 shots or something. I think it's up to, like, 12 or 13 vaccines. Nate can, Nathan can um, mm-hmm. fact check me on that. But um, we call that scientific progress <laughs> to my knowledge no one has ever said oh my gosh back in my day we only had 17 drugs for cancer and today oh my gosh they have so many cancer drugs can you believe that we have hundreds of cancer drugs now what is this world coming to nobody says that right it's scientific progress he's right we do have a number of new vaccines on the schedule we, it's more than doubled since i was a kid in the early 80s, and that's because we have learned how to prevent even more infectious diseases. I call that progress. It's also interesting to point out that really, although there were a few new vaccines added in the late 80s and the 90s, 
it's been a long time since we've had a truly new vaccine added to a the infant schedule and b what's required i think hpv right right so if i if i'm just looking at the infant schedule it, it, that was rotavirus in 2006 ish hep b i think was the hep b was like in the 80s and mm-hmm. night late 80s early 90s oh, yeah. that was the one i was going to mention was the right, last right. one that i can think of that was added as a requirement for kindergarten for most for i presume right mo- all states at the time or whenever it and then out. among adult older kids it was the, the two new ones were the hpv yeah. which is not that new anymore mm-hmm. and um then the meningitis b which is not even it's not considered a required vaccine right. it's, it's recommended yep. that you speak with your physician about whether it's right for you right yeah so and you know there's been changing of dosage and recommending of like uh, like uh, timing of dosage or or groups that should get it you know flu vaccine is recommended for everybody and not just certain high risk groups now and whatnot but and uh, there's a you know the prevnar now covers pneumococcal vaccine covers 13 strains not seven etc but th- it is not as dramatic as uh, you know the graphs and the things will show that pop right. up on anti-vaccines right. well and in fact our vaccines are getting better we have fewer antigens now admittedly the bulk of that drop was when we went from the dtp to the tdap mm-hmm. and the dtap but we still have fewer antigens and one of the things that i think is really great that i'm seeing in vaccine development right now is the combining of vaccines mm-hmm. so that you have mm-hmm. one shot that covers a broader number of vaccines it's cutting down the number of injections that kids have to get and i i think that's that's really great to see because I think that's part of the fear. It's this, you know, the sticking of a needle into this poor little child's baby body. And I understand that fear. You don't want to cause pain to anybody, whether it's, it's quick or it's not. Right. Mm -hmm. In 1987, Congress passed a law giving blanket immunity from liability to vaccine manufacturers. So suddenly vaccines. No. You, do you want to take this one, Nathan? <laughs> oh, sure. So uh, the name is escaping me, but the vaccine, the National Vaccine, National Vaccine and... Act in 1984. Childhood Injury it? Act, 86. Yeah, sorry. Right. Yes. What's interesting about the history of that is that was actually kind of a joint effort between like the CDC and also um, prom- the prominent anti-vaccine group at the time, which is now the... Um, the the national uh, national the vaccine, vaccine information center. sorry yes national vaccine information see the problem is all these acronyms are the same and I get the NVIC <laughs> yeah, and the MVC you know I don't think it's worth noting that's not an accident right. I right. think that's intentional it's yep. one thing that people who are advocating against vaccines with false information are doing is muddling the issue they're making it harder to figure out who oh, absolutely has the accurate information and that's that's frustrating if you go to both the um hhs website right now and if you go back and look at supreme court decision the supreme court decisions in uh Brusovitz versus wyeth uh mm-hmm. you'll find that actually vaccine manufacturers do not have blanket uh like protection from liability that there is of course set up the vaccine court which is largely for things that are not the fault not due to negligence from the manufacturer things like uh an allergy okay if you have an allergy to a vaccine just like if you had an allergy to a peanut it's not the fault of the person making either one of those products um and if you do in fact think that there is negligence uh on the part of the vaccine manufacturer there are routes to go through if you intend to actually take them to court, you'd have to actually either 
according to the HHS website, there's a period of time in which you can withdraw your claim or you can deny their decision and go on and sue the drug company. But then, and for specific things, it has to be for like negligence on the part of labeling or on the part of uh, like a manufacturing defect. But if it's kind of inherent to the vaccine, then that's not really their fault. And so the system actually works pretty well. It allows people to um, get compensation if there is uh, a real vaccine injury that's not necessarily the fault of any party uh, and it uh, allows them to go through a much less adversarial system than um, if they're going to sue a big drug company that's you know probably kind of hard but this system allows is is and actually is fairly lenient in terms of what they will compensate for a lot of things you don't have to prove are actually from a vaccine but if the if it is a certain kind of event and it's within a certain time frame and there's no proof that it's caused by something else they can get compensation etc so it's a pretty plaintiff friendly system it's almost as though if he were a lawyer he would know that you would think so you would think but he's an environmental lawyer so you know i don't know but it's it is interesting because um, I, I think that it's it's ex- it's exceedingly generous in the sense that there are multiple things that people get settlements for and that are pre-established as being able to get a settlement for that we have since learned there is not the evidence to support that it was caused by a vaccine. So mm-hmm. there are certain things yeah. that people can get compensation for, even though we now know that a vaccine doesn't actually cause that. And they can do that without all of the hassle and expense of going through a very lengthy, pricey lawsuit that they probably would have lost. Right. And so it's it's quite a remarkable system. I actually wish that kind of system existed for a lot of other types mm-hmm. of um, consumer complaints because it's, you know, you have a much higher chance of actually getting the settlement and not having to go through the challenges that you do normally when you're trying to uh, come after a, a company for something. So suddenly vaccines became pay dirt. There was a gold rush to put new vaccines on the schedule. I got three vaccines when I was a kid and I was fully compliant. My children got 69 vaccines. Today's children got 74 vaccines. It's extremely misleading to say that your children got 69 vaccines when what they got were 69 injections over a course of five years, which include all of the different series and all or longer or longer. Yes, depending on when he's talking about if you're counting flu shots and adolescent stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's we don't have 69 vaccines that are, that yeah. we, I mean, hell, if we could get 69 vaccines to protect me from 69 different things, sign me up. That sounds great. Um, as long as, you know, they've, they've been through the testing that all the other vaccines we have have been through, but we don't have that. So yeah, wrong. The other thing is I kind of think he is ill-informed about what vaccines he got because I know how old he is. I'm pretty sure he would have gotten a smallpox vaccine. Oh, yeah, yeah, he would have. And I was trying to figure out how old his kids would have been to get 69 vaccines. That's I don't want to guess at it, but it seems like my timelines don't seem to line up. Maybe grandkids would get yeah. six, would get more like that over the course of their entire childhood. But only if you're doing the wrong math. 74 shots of 16 vaccines. So, And nobody has ever tested all of what all those vaccines do together. And in fact, many of the vaccines have not been tested at all stop the presses okay i know we've been over but we just have i I can't let him get away with saying that there's no no such thing as any vaccine on the schedule that hasn't been tested that's bs so and then there's this claim that the entire schedule hasn't been tested which is 
you know, the problem here is that what they're saying is that there's no study that has taken everybody who's gotten all the vaccines and everybody who's gotten no vaccines and compared them uh, in a double-blind placebo-controlled forward uh, manner, right? Which is, of course, highly unethical because you can't withhold vaccines from all vaccines from half of your study. That's going to actually damage that's going to cause problems with some children and some may die so that is that is highly unethical so no that hasn't been done what has been done is every time that a vaccine is added to the schedule it's looked at uh, there are safety testing done uh kind of by itself and then also in concomitant studies that look at it with the other vaccines there are also retrospective studies that look at long term what if adding these vaccines has increased uh, certain conditions, certain long-term safety conditions. So there are studies actually looking at the entirety of the first year of vaccines and looking at those families that got all the vaccines versus those that delayed the vaccines versus those that didn't get all the vaccines and looked at neurological and developmental outcomes a decade down the road. Those kinds of studies are done. So that's how you study the schedule. Can I use my favorite metaphor here? Mm -hmm. Years and years ago, I was in high school. I went to Europe on one of these trips and we went to see the Mona Lisa at the Louvre and there was a family that wanted to have their picture in front of the Mona Lisa. And so they had their mom and dad go in front and then it was mom and dad and the oldest kid and then it was mom and dad and the youngest kid and then it was mom and dad and all three kids and it was mom and dad and the grandparents and kids and it was like all these combinations it was like one of those horrible math problems that you get in algebra class where it's like how many different combinations of people can you get in front of the Mona Lisa? That's what it's like to test a new vaccine on the schedule. Mm -hmm. It's like, let's try it with this vaccine. Now let's try it with that vaccine. Now let's try it with these two vaccines. Now let's try it with these two vaccines and then give this vaccine later. It, it's very, very similar because I've looked at these studies and it, it feels like one of those, you know, one of those horrible series problems you had in algebra class of, you know, how many different combinations can you do? And what's interesting is that means the more that, you know, the later on something is added, the more studies have to be done because there's more combinations to figure out. So I think that's important to mention. And by the way, while we were talking, I did look up on, um, you know, trusty Wikipedia. Always remember, you know, I always believe what I, find. I read on Wikipedia, right? But um, I did, I looked up the dates of his children's births and his children were born in 84, 88, mm -hmm. uh, let's see here, 94, 95, 97, and 2001. So the, the earlier two there, 84 and 88, they would have only gotten the same vaccines I got, which were basically... Uh, polio, DTP, yeah. and MMR. Yep. Yeah, I have questions. Let's uh, keep going. I don't know what the answer is, but I know what the questions ought to be, and you always have a place in the show to ask them. Any, anyone with sincere questions. But you know, it's not very, that is very kind and courageous of you because, as you know, most television hosts will not let you on to talk about this issue. Stop the presses. This is all you. Let me rephrase that for you there, uh, RFK Jr. <laughs> How about most television producers who are responsibly carrying out their duty and following journalistic ethics will not allow someone to come on their show and question established scientific evidence? And that is why I think that calling Tucker Carlson a journalist is a bit of a stretch <laughs> because he's not really known for uh, facts or evidence. So... Um, hats off to everybody who said no to letting RFK on their show because we do not need journalists to be giving a platform to people who are promoting misinformation which is what he does 
Amen to that. All right, let's finish this up. Typically, 17 out of 24 advertisements are pharmaceutical advertisements, and most hosts are frightened of that. So I am very grateful <laughs> I don't to you think for we your ought to be afraid of honest questions, and I think you're, you're asking them. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Tucker. You know how they said a broken clock is right twice a day? That was his other time that he was right. Yeah. <laughs> 100% in favor of of taking off direct-to-consumer advertising for pharmaceuticals. Exactly. I don't want to see a single pharmaceutical ad in a magazine or on television. Mm-hmm. I don't think they should be allowed. So I agree with him on that. That was his second chance to be right. Especially that awful Ozempic ad. I'm sorry. That is just, it's an affront. Mm. That oh, 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 Ozempic. I don't know what it's for, <laughs> but it needs to go away. I, I have to say, though, whoever came up with that jingle and managed to fit that drug name into that song, that was brilliant. And you did a wonderful rendition of it. <laughs> yeah. There's... Don't do it again because it'll get in my head. Well, there's also the Trilogy ad. Don't. Just don't. Okay, I won't sing it. <laughs> but now that's right. in my head, too. I'm sorry. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Tara. Yeah, this was fun. Yeah, it was. It was a lot of fun, and I'm glad that we got to do some fact checking in a in a fun way to celebrate National Immunization Awareness Month. Um, And where can people find you on Twitter or other places? Um, My, you can find me on Twitter at at t a r a h a e l l e. I am also on Facebook. You can find uh, my Facebook page for the blog that I haven't updated in quite a while, which is Red Wine and Applesauce. But you can also find me as Tara Haley Journalist on there. Um, all of my books, the, um, the Vaccination Investigation, The Informed Parent that I co-authored with Dr. Willingham, and uh, multiple other children's science books that I've written are all for sale at um, your pretty much your, your major retailers. So you Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble, uh, various indie booksellers. I don't. I don't want to give special preference to any particular bookseller, but it's it's available to all the major booksellers, um, and uh, I am pretty accessible. If people send me messages on Twitter, I, I can't promise I'm going to respond to every person. I'm going to respond quickly, but I, I usually do try to respond to people. Okay. Um, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you all for listening in and joining Vax Talk. My name is Karen Ernst, and I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find Voices for Vaccines at VoicesForVaccines.org. And I'm Nathan Boonstra. Find me on uh, Twitter at PedsGeekMD or on Facebook or at my blog, PedsGeekMD.com. And I just want to um, memorialize before I stop the recording that Nathan just sent me this really, really mean text that says, (laughs) it's a little meme. It says, recognized experts over time, leading scientists in the 1980s, PhD student in the 1990s, media experts in the 2000s, and Karen on Facebook in the 2010s. (laughs) I call bullying. Yeah, I, I got it too because you you heard that little ding. Yeah, that ding. was me. Yeah, that that was yeah. that was Nathan sending it, and then it was Karen giving the the sad, you don't love me anymore face. Yeah. So yeah. Exactly it. no, I thought it was a compliment. I mean, I'm just talking about your expertise, Karen. I've already done the PSA about how we don't we don't talk about Karen and yeah. and Karenish things in the in the yeah. setting of vaccines because it's yeah, just not well. Fun. Now it's memorialized, and I'm going to. S- I'm going to stop the recording. <laughs>